The writer Sergio Troncoso is very aware that the Latin origin of his first name means to serve. You have to serve somebody and you have to, I think, be humble and just do the work and focus on that and that alone. Discover how hard work and the written word led Sergio Troncoso from his tiny border town outside El Paso, Texas, to an education at Harvard, and how his experiences are reflected in his essays and fiction. Today on New Letters on the Air, a production of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I'm Angela Elam. Though Sergio Troncoso now lives with his wife and two sons in New York City, he returns often to the border town of his childhood to visit family there and to write about the early years without electricity or running water. His love of learning landed him at Harvard and then Yale, where he got degrees in government, international relations, and philosophy, but it's writing that claimed his heart. His first book, The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, won the 2000 Southwest Book Award. He's since come out with two novels, The Nature of Truth and This Wicked Patch of Dust, as well as the book of essays, Crossing Borders. In 2013, he co-edited an anthology called Our Lost Border, Essays on Life Amid Narco-Violence. So the challenges of those communities are much on the mind of Sergio Troncoso. I teach at Yale and I tell my kids, you know, if you're smoking marijuana, every time you, you smoke, you're really killing Mexicans. You know, you're finding decapitations by the dozens in Juarez. And it's that kind of responsibility. It's not that I'm a prude. Frankly, I'm not moralistic in that way. But we do share responsibility for any kind of drug use. And marijuana is the number one cash crop of the cartels. That's where they make their billions. Knowing a lot of Mexican writers like Lolita Bosch and Diego Sorno, the consumption now is about a third within Mexico. So that is something, it's not just the United States, it's also affecting Mexican culture. It's interesting to me, too, that you're not judging it morally. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with whether you're for smoking marijuana or not smoking. It's just when you make that choice, you are feeding this growing Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I was a teenager, too. And uh, <laughs> you know, when I was at Harvard, I mean, you know, I smoked pot. But now that I'm an adult and I'm aware and I'm a parent, You know there's the connection. What you do in the Northeast or in Missouri or in California, it is affecting these things on the border. And perhaps maybe 20 years ago, you didn't have that violent connection, but you do now. And so it behooves all of us to be responsible for what we are doing in this wave of money that buys FBI agents, buys Mexican policemen, local governments. It's sometimes incredible the kind of money that is thrown around by the cartels to make sure that these routes are left open. You mention in Crossing Borders, because you do have family down there, you were hesitant about going down there with your family. And it made you sad because your two sons couldn't experience the Juarez that you grew up with. Is that still true when you go down to Isleta? Isleta. I grew up in Isleta when Isleta was a shanty town. It's in the outskirts of El Paso. It had not yet been annexed by El Paso, so we didn't have electricity. We had kerosene lamps and stoves, and uh, we had an outhouse in the backyard. And I don't fail to remind my Yale students, you know, that I'm the opposite of an Andover-Exeter kid. Where I started was very different. And 
everybody was Mexicano, not Mexican-American, but Mexicano, people from Juarez who had just crossed. And we built our own house. My mother was knocking down the roof shingles, and we helped as kids build our own house. This life really affected how I looked at the world. I lived in between two countries, in between two languages, and I learned to work. I think that's one of the things my parents taught me, the work ethic. You work until you drop. You work beyond exhaustion. You work Saturdays and Sundays. You work in the summer. And this is the same kind of work ethic that I've tried to apply to my sons, who are New York City kids. And I'm proud to say that my sons are bilingual. You know, they grew up in New York, but they talked to my parents in Spanish. That was very important to me. And it was very important for me that they learn how I grew up so that they don't get jaded. You know, the Upper West Side is a very highfalutin, rich place. And that's, I think, the price of success, that when you do well, your kids get soft, I think. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that what it takes to get out of a place like Isleta and then go to Harvard is backbreaking work that most people really rarely do or they just don't want to do. And I tell my kids, your problem is that a lot of things have been given to you and you have to learn to struggle and force yourself to fight for what you want. So I have taken them to Isleta and they haven't yet been to Mexico, but we have taken them to Costa Rica and we have taken them to other places. And I think soon, in fact, it could be this December that we take them to Juarez because I think the violence has ebbed a bit the last couple of years or so. You look at this idea of borders from a lot of different perspectives in some of your personal essays in the book called Crossing Borders. And this is where your training as a philosopher really comes in useful, I think. Because New Letters on the Air is all about literary things, mm-hmm. I've picked out some things that have more to do with your writing and what shaped okay. you as a writer. I would love to hear you read From Finding Our Voice from Literacy to Literature. Oh, yeah. Let me start by focusing on my experiences as the son of Mexican immigrants. But let me briefly tell you why I do it this way. I believe we learn better from example than from a vague idea to be such and such a way. In this manner, I am Aristotelian. I believe you learn and gain knowledge by doing the right thing and not by simply theorizing about what is right. What I do and what I did are much more important than what I say. Somebody please impart this lesson to the would-be Solons of the U.S. Congress. An example for me is more powerful as a moral guide than an exhortation or admonition. That's why I write stories. If I can make the reader believe in and care for a character in one of my stories, I feel I am more likely to change that reader's life, to illuminate it, with a new look at an old question than by simply writing an abstract treatise. Not surprisingly, moral character is the groundwork of Aristotle's ethics. The second reason I focus on my experiences is because I don't think I am remarkable in any way. I believe many of you, if not most, can do a better job than I did of educating yourself, of focusing on your family, of contributing to your community. When I arrived at Harvard, I was terrified and begged to go home. When I saw my first book on a bookshelf at a Barnes & Noble in New York, I had a weird out-of-body experience, 
someone, an imposter, had used my name, written about my neighborhood in Isleta and El Paso, and was cashing checks for my stories. That couldn't be me, could it? In my head, I often still think of myself as a stubborn, fat little boy everybody ignored. So yes, I know you can do better than I ever did. You can take the journey I have started further down the road. My example, I hope, will be a challenge to you and a call to action. That's just a little bit from the essay called Finding Our Voice, From Literacy to Literature, and it's by Sergio Troncoso from his book, Crossing Borders, Personal Essays. It gives you some insight to life on the border, but you are dealing with borders that have not only to do with the physical borders between America and Mexico, but the borders that exist within families, and then also the borders between religions, because you were raised Catholic and your Mm -hmm. wife was raised Jewish. And I feel like I got to know your family through your book of essays, Crossing Borders, because I got to see both Aaron and Isaac deal with some things in the family. I've taught them to be open-minded. I think if I've taught them anything, it's not to judge people by appearances, to ask questions. I was told all sorts of crazy things about Jews before I had ever met a Jew in Isleta. I remember a Catholic priest told me, uh, Jews eat babies. This oh was, my this goodness. was when I was in grade school. And I, you know, and it was Mexicano. And of course, I went to Harvard and I fell in love with my wife and I got to know her family. And I struggled for acceptance from my mother in law. So I had to fight that. And I learned to appreciate. Judaism, even though I didn't convert, but I loved going to high holy days services, and I loved certainly the focus on education. You know, the familia, connecting with familia. They're a very close-knit family, and so are we. And in fact, that's exactly how Laura and I connect. You know, we are both very tied to our families. We believe in our families, above all, and in education. And in that way, my parents and Laura's parents are very similar. So that's one of the things I think I've learned in in my life, that you can't judge people by appearances. You have to dig into their character. You have to see how they are, and you have to ask questions. And another thing that I don't write about in Crossing Borders, but my sister is Muslim. My sister converted. She's a Chicana Muslim. She married a Muslim. Right, exactly. Does she wear the veil? She wears the shador. In the late 70s, she was heavily into liberation theology, kind of radical Catholicism. She went to Nicaragua and El Salvador. Yeah, and my sister converted. She has five kids, Irene Mex, and they are brilliant kids. And so these mixtures create these border crossers, so to speak, between languages, religions, geographies. I was really, really taken by how clearly you write to not only tell people things, but you write to begin to understand your own thinking. And I'm really impressed by how you've used your own website, which you built, I understand. Yes, I did it myself. And you have your own blog post, which some of the blogs are published in this book, Crossing Borders, which I love, by the way. Right. And then you've used this to clarify and share your own thoughts. So you're not just tied to 
writing for traditional books, you're trying to share it in other ways. Can you talk some about what made you realize that you needed to open up the world of your exploration of literature in these newer ways? Well, I started the website years ago, and I learned by doing everything from simple things like video and audio to having images flip through a particular page. And I love HTML. You know, you have to be really precise. It's If a period is wrong in HTML, the thing doesn't work. Exactly. And so I love that. And I know most writers don't like that kind of precision. And I was a poor kid in Isleta. I had no money for books. My parents would give me $5 every once in a while to buy scholastic books. And free stuff was important to my reading. I would go to the library and read Essie Hinton, and that was then, this is now, and and people would give me free books, and I amassed these paperback collection of hundreds of tiny little books that were inexpensive. So for me, doing the web and having a significant part of my work available is for that kid that has access to the website, to a website at a library, and can read some of my work for free because I want to connect with people. It's important for me to affect that kid, and I want to be open. My email is right on the front page of my website. I get a lot of emails from kids who who read my work or read a, a rock trying to be a stone and said, oh, I identified with that kid. And, and what he was doing, and, and is this what you were saying? And I try my best to respond. Sometimes it takes me a while. depends on what's available. But it's part of having an effect on the community and being open and, and being available. You pay a price in time, but I think you also, I hope, affect others coming down the pike, people who are younger, who say, I can be a writer. And that's important to me. That's so essential for me. And I do it willingly, and and, and sometimes, you know, I, I do it at 2 in the morning, and so I have ojeras, <laughs> I have these lines under my eyes, and I say, oh, are you responding to more email that people sent you? And yeah, and I do, and you know, I get email from Brazil, I get email from Egypt, I get email from all over the world sometimes, and it's important for me to be accessible. Right. You have a book of personal essays, your nonfiction, and then at the same time, this novel comes out from this wicked patch of dust that's dealing with a lot of the same things. I figured out how you got the title for that from one of your essays in Crossing Borders. It's something that your mother would say, right? She called Isleta Este Maldito Terregal, which means this dust bowl, this nothingness of dust in which we live. And that's Isleta. You know, it's in the middle of the desert. There's not much else around. It's less than a quarter of a mile from the Rio Grande, and it's a dust nothingness. I wrote an essay titled that, and then I had one of the characters in the novel say, describe Isleta that way. And then I had another title for the novel, but the publisher say, you know, we really like this phrase. Can we use it? And I said, well, it's already been used in an essay. I said, well, we'll just add from this wicked patch of dust. So they actually picked it up. You can see some of your family stories Mm -hmm. get woven in and fictionalized somehow. And there's a character that kind of has background not too far from yours, a little bit like your sister. Mm -hmm. And I always love to find out how writers take life and transform it into art. That's what you've done with this novel. So let's hear a little bit. Okay. I'm going to read from this section, the youngest Ismael, who's also called Mayelo. It's his nickname, Ismael Martinez. 
and he's 18, and he's talking to his grandparents, Doña Josefina and Don Pedro, and he's about to give them big news. Don't go. What are you going to do so far away from your familia? Doña Josefina said with a catch in her throat. It's the best school in the country, abuelita. I had to go. I want to go. In the small living room that faced the red brick tenements across the street, Don Pedro soaked his feet and dropped tablets of salt into the hot water. The old man wiggled his toes and grinned into the warm night air and gently closed his eyes. Doña Josefina heated a quesadilla oozing with monster cheese on her skillet on the stove while Ismael slowly munched on a quesadilla quarter at the table. You don't know anybody in Boston. By the time you come back, your grandfather and I will be buried in the hot sand. Stay in El Paso and go to college here like Panchito. Abuelita, did you know that President Kennedy went to that school? Senators and presidents and very famous people have gone to Harvard. It costs more than $10,000 per year to go to this school. Jesus, Maria, y José, puros malitos ricachones. You'll be poor and alone if you go there. They sat down on her porch just outside the living room. In the darkness, Doña Josefina's face was momentarily lit when she struck a match to light her cigarette. She hunched over and stared at the concrete floor. The hump on her back was almost as high as her head. They're giving me una beca, abuelita. This school will change my life. What do I know about these things, Mayelo? I'm just a poor Mexicana with nothing but this viejo in the living room with his stinky feet. What are your parents going to do without you? First Marcos and Julieta and now you. I know we don't count for anything, but I say don't go. Almost everybody, too. I'll be back for Christmas and for the summer, Abuelita. It's the best school in the United States. You'll come back a different person. Worse, you won't want to come back after you see everything out there. Why would you want to come back to this horrible nada? Abuelita, that's not true. I'll be back. I'll call you every week on the weekends when it's cheaper. I'll learn so much. Nobody at Isleta has ever been to Harvard. At least no one the teachers can remember. It's a great honor, mijo. We know that. I'm sure everyone in Isleta is proud of you. But this is who you are she said for a moment, scanning the dark night air in the empty street. Her cricket chirped in the darkness. God help you when you go to this Harvard. You'll be so far away from us, from everything you know. You'll be alone. What if something happens to you? Who's going to help you? But you always wanted to be alone. You always wanted to be so independent, so stubborn. Like you. Ay, Dios. Just remember your familia, Mayelo. Go, but come back. Doña Josefina said sadly, taking a quesadilla quarter from the plate on the ground. She handed the rest to Ismael. She stared at the screen door for a moment, her lazy eye ablaze in a red light, as she inhaled her cigarette. Pedro, get up and wash the dishes. This hombre is unbelievable. He will sleep all day if I let him. Get up before I go in there with a broomstick and smash it on your head, viejo apestoso. Oiga, senora, a raspy voice proclaimed on the other side of the screen door. Don't you know that you're talking to one of the kings of Harvard? Ahora verás, cabrón. They'd throw you in the trash at Harvard. That I know. 
That's just one scene from the novel From This Wicked Patch of Dust. It's written by Sergio Troncoso, and you're listening to New Letters on the Air. You know, from reading your essays, that grandmother is very similar to your grandmother in some ways, feisty, except I got the sense that your grandmother would have never told you, don't go. Well, I think there was always mixed feelings, even within me, about leaving El Paso because I did grow up in a very tight-knit community. But I was always very curious, and I think curiosity in many ways led me away from El Paso, but it also brought me back to write books. Through your writing, exactly. It's not magic what I did. It took a lot of backbreaking work. It took sacrifice. It took focus. And it took doing more than than whatever was necessary. And even when people from El Paso, when I was in high school, and, and I remember telling somebody I wanted to go to Harvard, and they laughed. And they said, you know, they don't take people like you at Harvard. And that was a Mexicano who said that, an wow. administrator. Yeah. So sometimes That became you, a challenge, didn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. For yeah. me, it's you push me in the chest, you better expect to shove right back because it got me angrier. And I said, I'm going to show you. Just you wait. And so I think we have to do that. One thing I've got to get you to talk a little bit about, because it sounds like you've done this very successfully, you were a stay-at-home dad. As Mm -hmm. a writer, you took a big part of taking care of your kids because your wife, Laura, Mm -hmm. is a banker. She works for a bank in private banking, and she focuses on Latin America. And she's fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. And, in fact, we had the same thesis advisor. Oh, really? Is that how you met? Well, we actually met before that, but we were in Latin America courses at Harvard, and she thought I was Greek, and I thought she was English, and we were both completely wrong. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, we have a very collaborative marriage. Sometimes I have to travel, and some people don't know this, but I was an economist before I was a writer, and I'm actually one of those writers who knows how to invest money and have done so for many years. In fact, when Laura and I were in Mexico City right after college and I'd gotten the Fulbright, over half that money that we saved on the Fulbright, I invested in the early 80s. And as you know, that was the beginning of the bull market. I'd done that for over 30 years. So, you know, when she's traveling, I'm at home. And when I'm here in Missouri or wherever, she's at home. And we've always done it that way. It sounds so you know, great. I it's mean, hard that, work. <laughs> oh, it is hard work. And you get that, how hard it is when you read the essays. But it's so interesting to have a man writing about how hard it is. Absolutely. Because, you know, women recognize that. And Right. And, know, and I so. wanted my wife to have a great career. And so at a certain point when my kids were very small, you know, I was primarily at home, but I was also doing other stuff. I changed as many or probably more diapers than my wife did, and I was there picking up my kids from school and taking them to school. I wanted to be involved. People have asked me, you know, you were taking care of the kids, doing all this work at home, and but she was doing the same thing. Saturdays and Sundays, I was off writing, and she was cooking dinner, and Monday through Friday, I was cooking dinner, and she was off working. And so tag team, tag team parenting, hard work, and focusing on the family and not worried about roles or who has the stronger role or who's the leader because we are, we're not leaders. We're both a team, and we work together, and we've always done it that way. And, you know, that's one of the best decisions I ever made. I married Laura, and people ask me this, and I say, well, I wanted her to be happy. And if she's happy with her career, then I want to make sure 
She's getting the support at home to have a great career, great education. She needs to travel. I'm going to stay home. I'll take care of the kids. You know, the same thing goes for me. When I need to do work and become a hermit and not be found on the cell phone because I'm in the middle of writing something, she takes care of it. And that's how we've always done it. And so I think we're blessed and we have created this very strong family in our, our little group. And, you know, you've got this wonderful marriage, but you've also, you've had your complications aside from, you know, her Jewish family and your Christian family, but the fact that she is a cancer survivor, and you write about that beautifully in the book of essays, Crossing Borders. It's not like you have led this fairy tale life. I don't want people to think that because you've definitely had some challenges along the way, but your team is Absolutely. And, and to... w- when my wife got cancer 14 years ago or so, and it had spread, she had positive lymph nodes. And I don't write anything without clearing it with her first because it's a very personal right. thing. And you construct these almost like letters to your sons. They were 11 months, and then Aaron was two and a half, three. And I wanted them to know what we went through because it was very difficult. Laura was pretty much bedridden for about a year. She had to have surgery, a mastectomy, the harshest chemo. And so we did go through this horrible gauntlet. And it teaches you also to not worry about the stupid little things, the little jealousies. You know, it teaches you that life is precious and that what you have, you never know you can lose it. And so you fight to keep it. One of the reasons I wrote the essays is Laura would come back from her breast cancer support group at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and she would tell me story after story of her friends, and her best friend died in that group, of the boyfriends or husbands who would abandon their women when they were going through probably the worst crisis of their lives. And I thought this was shameful. I thought it was cowardly, and I wanted to give a different example of being a man and being a husband, being a father. And it was important to me. You know, you can call it an essay, but had moral purposes to it. Mm-hmm. And and that's the same thing, philosophy and literature. You know, I thought I would have you end with the ending of Crossing Borders. It's from your essay, Why Should Latinos Write Their Own Stories? Mm-hmm. I just think this sums up so much of you. Okay. We should tell our stories so that we define ourselves. We should tell our stories to challenge ourselves. It is easy to sit back and appreciate how unique we are. It is much harder to ask what we should be and why. We should celebrate our multicultural heritage, but then we should be confident enough about ourselves to ask critical questions about this self-same heritage. It is not a mark of disrespect or irreverence or cultural betrayal to ask these questions. It is a mark of our cultural strength that we can improve ourselves through criticism. When I was at Isleta High School, I wrote for the school newspaper, The Powwow, and I was a pain in the ass. I had been writing these critical articles about how a certain important student organization, which shall remain nameless, was being run in a shoddy manner. It was simply the truth, and I thought that by writing about it, I would get this organization to shape up. Well, soon after my newspaper stories appeared in the powwow, the faculty advisor of this organization, who also shall remain nameless, stopped me in the hallway, his face contorted with anger, and yelled, Sergio, who do you think you are? You should act more like a student. Just wait until I talk to your advisors. Of course, 
To their great credit, Pearl Crouch and Josefina Kynard, my journalism advisors at the powwow, never told me to change a word in my news stories. They knew I was right. The facts were on my side. Later, another teacher, who was friendlier to me, said, Sergio, you give them hell. You keep giving them hell, even if they yell at you. Show them that a Mexicano can beat them with his mind. I have never forgotten these words, and I will never forget them. That's that pushback that you were just talking about earlier. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Angela. It's been wonderful for me, too. Sergio Troncoso, reading from his 2011 essay book, Crossing Borders. For links to his works, visit our website, newletters.org, where you can sign up for our free podcast under Ways to Listen. New Letters on the Air is a production of New Letters Magazine, published by the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Today's show was produced with help from Ross Steinmetz, Stephanie Hughes, Brittany Jones, Grace Stansberry, and Jamie Walsh. I'm Angela Elam for New Letters on the air.